Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and you're joining us for a special episode today. An episode that marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that happened, well, 20 years ago tomorrow. It's astonishing to think it's been 20 years since that day, the day when we all watched our TV screens around the world as not only one plane hit, but then astonishingly a second plane hit. It went from being perceived as an air disaster to being seen as a terrorist attack. Those fires raging so high up in the sky and the billows of smoke going across that blue sky of New York so early on what was then a Tuesday morning in September. There are, of course, 19 al-Qaeda terrorists who hijacked four planes that day, and we shouldn't forget those who bravely fought off the terrorists and the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, and those who died in the attacks on the Pentagon as well. But in this episode, we're bringing this back round to the human story, and I'm joined by Joe Dittmar, who was on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center when the planes hit the first tower on that day. He takes us through what it was like the sights, the sounds, the fears, the ferocity of being in the second tower, how he made his way out, how he was just a few floors away when the second plane hit. But he also enlightens us to those stories of heroism, of those first responders making their way up, of how everyone was human that day, just trying to make their way out of the tower, to make their way back to their mothers, their families, and most importantly, to make their way home. Joe talks frankly about that day. And some aspects of what he witnessed are upsetting and graphic. So please keep that in mind when you listen. So here is Joe Dittmar on 9-11 from a survivor's perspective. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, feeling well and uh, glad to be getting through the uh, tail end or the back end of the pandemic. Aren't we all? Have you been able to enjoy summer at all at the moment? Yeah, we have. Uh, living at the shore, I've had the opportunity to get to the beach with family and friends, something that we haven't been able to do in 19, 20 months. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great summer so far. We're all vaccinated. We all seem to be doing well. So we're taking advantage of a little bit of freedom this summer. 
Oh, that's fantastic news and great to hear. You're up in Delaware, aren't you? What's the coast like there? Is it a nice sandy beach coast or is it designed perfectly for going out on the water? What's it like there? It's pretty much typical of what you'd see on the East Coast of the United States, like in New Jersey or North Carolina or Virginia. It's pretty much the same. Nice sandy beaches, usually pretty deep. We have both bay and ocean access here. So if we want waves, we go to the ocean. If we want bay, we go to the bay beach. And uh, plenty of sun, plenty of sand. That's Well, you've got a bit of everything. This sounds like absolute luxury. I know where my next holiday is going to be. Do you work for the Delaware Tourist Board, Joe? (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. And we, and honestly, we like to keep it a secret down here that it is as nice as it is. So, uh, oops, I didn't mean any of that, okay? <laughs> all right, well, there you go. It's a secret between all of us. Well, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast, a, a special episode to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Now, this is, of course, an event that really shook the whole world. As politicians said, everyone is American today. I can remember seeing it on repeat on television, the planes crashing into the World Trade Center, into both towers, and it really did have a marked impact on so many of our lives and those who went off and served in the wars on terror around the world as well, some of which are only just coming to an end today. But for you, this is far more of a personal event because you were in the towers on that day. So let's go right back to the beginning of your story. What brought you to the World Trade Center early on that sunny Tuesday morning in September 2001? Boy, it was a sunny, beautiful morning that day too, no doubt about it. I'm in the insurance industry, have been in that industry for 43 years, and the trade centers were, and even to this day, the new One World Trade Center continues to be somewhat of a mecca for the insurance industry. Virtually every insurance organization in the U.S., maybe in the world, have offices there at the Trade Center and had some in one and two World Trade Center at that time. So it was not unusual for an exec like myself to be asked to attend a meeting there. I was working in Chicago at the time. I worked for CNA Insurance and I was a senior vice president in charge of commercial underwriting at the time. I got a call in August of 2001 from my friend Mary Weeman at the Aon Corporation, super broker, super agent, and she asked me to uh, attend a meeting the following month. The dates that she was looking to have this meeting on were a little bit tough for me because I had the opportunity to do something much more insurance relatable. I had a chance to go to a golf outing. (laughs) That was uh, a business golf outing, but a golf outing nonetheless. So when she called me to attend that meeting, I kind of hesitated to want to accept the meeting invitation. And Mary did to me on the phone call what every woman has done to me since the day I was born. She uh, used her good old-fashioned Catholic guilt. (laughs) Oh, sure, Joe, no problem. I understand nobody from CNA will be at the meeting, but that's okay. It's a big meeting. It's, you know, a big client, potential for you to make a lot of money on this deal. But, but, you know, and then in the middle of all this, she stopped and she said, hey, do you know the president of your company? And I said, well, of course, I report to the president of my company. Why do you ask? And she said, because I'm going to get the chance to see him next week. So I'm going to let him know that nobody from his company can go to the meeting. (laughs) 
And I said, yeah, okay, Mary, I get how this works. All right. So I ultimately conceded to attend her meeting in uh, September of 2001. The meeting was scheduled for 9-11. I came back to Philadelphia on the Friday before that Tuesday, city I was born and raised in, visited with my mom and dad on Friday, my sister on Saturday, my son and I went to a Philadelphia Eagles football game on Sunday. I had the chance to do that golf thing on Monday, had a real insurance meeting on Monday afternoon after the golf outing, and then got up bright and early, real bright and early on Tuesday to attend the meeting in New York. I say bright and early because if you know anything about New York, one thing you don't want to do, even though I'm in South Jersey at this point, you don't want to drive into New York City. The traffic is just absolutely horrible. So my game plan was drive back from South Jersey to Philadelphia, uh, get on Amtrak, take the train to New York City. And that's exactly what I did. I did as I planned. I got up at 3.30 in the morning, drove back to Philly, was there by 5.30, bought my round trip ticket to the train. The train pulled in at 6 a.m. just when it was supposed to. Our meeting was supposed to be at 8.30, so I wanted to be on time, if not ahead of time, and got down on the train and took off my suit coat, took off my backpack, pulled out my laptop, turned my laptop on, sat down in the seat, and did what all of us guys do at 6 a.m. on the Metroliner train on the way to New York with our laptops on on our laps. I fell asleep. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, okay? So I was pretty tired. And we were about two-thirds of the way up to New York when my cell phone rang. I love to tell everybody younger than the 20 years since this event that, yes, there were cell phones in 2001, okay? They were. They were bricks. They had aerials that you pulled out of them, or at least mine did back then. Maybe you could afford one that was a little bit more sophisticated, but mine, you could barely carry it. You could build houses out of it, Joe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mine was one of the new generation Razor flip phones. Now I'm really aging myself as well. So, But, uh, yeah, we had them, and the service was, in essence, as effective then as it is today when it came to instant communication. And I like to tell people that because it changed the way that you would plan your trip. I mean, back in the old days, if you were planning a trip like this, that I was coming from Chicago to Philly to New York, you'd have to have a lot of itineraries. Your business stuff would always have a written itinerary, tell people where you were going to be, what phone numbers to reach you at, landline phone numbers to reach you at, what hotel you were staying at, what your room number was, yada, yada, yada. Once cell phones came into play, life became a little bit easier. You could tell whomever, whenever, wherever I am, that's where I'll be. Just hit me up on my cell phone. That's good. And it wasn't any different on this trip. I told my wife, not a whole lot. I'm going back to Philly, visiting the family, going to have a business thing in South Jersey on Monday. And then I got a business meeting in New York on Tuesday morning. I'll be back Tuesday night. Love you. That's basically all I told her. Cell phone rings. I'm on the train. I pick it up half asleep, sounding groggy. My wife says to me, oh my God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to wake you up. I said, no, 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 that's okay. The train's getting ready to pull into Newark and I got to get off. And she said, Newark, thought you said you were going to New York. And I said, yeah, I am. I am. I said, but it's a lot easier to get to the World Trade Center if I take the PATH train from Newark into New York City because the PATH stops right at the Trade Center. 
told my wife that morning exactly where I was going to be. Got off that Amtrak train and onto path with thousands of other New Jerseyans and zipped my way into New York City. And when we got to Two World Trade Center and I walked into the lobby, the thing that probably struck me the most, other than just the immense size of those buildings, which I had been in many times before, the thing that always struck my fancy, the thing that always impressed me were the security people. You know, there were as many as 25,000 people in each of those buildings, and yet those security people seemed to have the knack to be able to just look at whomever it was walking through the building. No identification, no anything else. Just a little bit of eye-to-eye contact to know whether you belonged or didn't belong. I mean, that was incredible. And I guess the 93 bombing... I was going to say, exactly. In 1993, when you had the truck bombings in the car park of the World Trade Center, you had to step up security. It's not like the World Trade Center towers weren't already seen as a target. That's right. And 93 taught them a lesson, and they really built upon that history and made the security system pretty damn good. We uh, got into the building, and we had to go right over. He looked at me. He knew I didn't belong. Give me a little wave go over to the security desk, picture taken electronically, transferred onto a little white card that has my name. I'm looking at it right now, my name, the building that I'm in, the floor that I'm going to, what company I'm going to visit, how long the card was good for it was good until the 12th of September 2001 and a barcode. And the barcode was the most important thing on the little card because that's what let you swipe your way through the electronic turnstiles that separated you from the elevators in the building. So once that process was done, we swipe our way through the electronic turnstiles. We got to make a choice of what bank of elevators we're going to get into. Each building was identical. Each building was 110 stories high, and they really couldn't make elevators that would go straight up 110 stories, at least then and probably even now. I don't know if that engineering feat's capable or not. So you had to choose a bank of elevators that serviced 1 through 43, a bank of elevators that went up to 44 and then serviced everything 45 through 77, and then a bank of elevators that would take you on an express basis up to 78, that then in turn you'd get off those elevators and get on another set of elevators that would service everything through 110. We were going to 105, so we went over to that bank of elevators. And those 44th and 78th floors, they were sky lobbies, second and third lobbies in the building. When we got to 78, we made our transfer onto an elevator, went up to 105. When we got to 105, the doors opened up, and the woman I mentioned earlier, Mary Weeman, she's there kind of by accident to greet us. And it was a surreal moment because she's got a spray bottle of liquid soap in one hand and a rag uh, this woman wasn't Susie Homemaker by any stretch of the imagination, but this was how important this meeting was to her. She was polishing furniture in the enclosed conference room that she was about to lead us to, and that's what she did. She took us to this enclosed conference room, and it's important to understand that it was enclosed because you've got four walls, no windows, one door, 54 people attending this meeting, including Mary. And the meeting was supposed to start at 8.30 a.m. I've been in the industry 43 years. Never start on time in the insurance industry. It wasn't any different that day. 8.30 kind of came and went. It's about 8.46. 
and we notice an electronic flicker of the lights. That's it. We couldn't see anything. We didn't hear anything. We didn't feel anything. Just this flicker of the lights. Almost immediately, almost immediately, a gentleman from Aon Corporation, a gentleman by the name of Rick Blood, he came into the room. He said, hey, there's been an explosion in the North Tower. We got to evacuate. 54 intelligent human beings all in the same room all at the same time. We all did the same thing to Rick. We said, Rick, this is New York. Come on. Stuff is always happening here. and We'll be fine. Let us have our meeting. And he looked at us and shook his head a little bit. And he said, no, you don't understand. I'm one of those volunteer guys, uh, volunteer fire marshal. I have to empty out 105, 104, 103 so that I can leave. And believe me, I want to leave. So let's go. Let's get out. I know he got everybody, all 54 people out of the room that day because I was the last guy out took us over to the closest fire stairwell, and that's where he proceeded to tell us that we were going to walk down 105 flights of steps. Oh, yeah, what a bunch of happy campers. <laughs> this was back in the day when we were talking about this before, where you were the man if you had your flip phone and you had a holster on your belt. You were all that, okay? And that's what everybody did. They reached to their right or their left company assigned cell phones and pulled them out, flipped them up, and we were going to call somebody to moan and groan about the fact that we couldn't have our meeting. Something interesting happened. No service. All the phones flashing on the screen, no service. The main cell tower for all of southern Manhattan was on top of the North Tower, the first building to be struck. So the cell service which at that point was earlier in the stage of cellular technology, was gone. And if listeners are thinking, well, great, if you really need to talk to somebody, get on a landline, that's an excellent idea as well. Except everybody in New York are now on those landlines, trying to contact their mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, spouse, whomever, to make sure they're okay, let them know where they are. And everybody in the world, and that's no stretch in the world that knows somebody in New York City, they're now calling in on those landlines, trying to find out the same things. Is everybody okay? So cell service is gone. The landlines couldn't handle the communication traffic. I never considered that before, Joe. I didn't realize that the cell tower was on the top of World Trade Center Tower 1. And you're absolutely right. As soon as everyone starts to ring in, that's when all communication gets blocked up. And you're essentially, no matter what level of technology you have, and it sounds like, you know, you did have a better cell phone than me. I'm, I'm going to say it, Joe. That flip phone razor was not in my possession for another five years. It was a hand-me-down from my dad, and I, I loved it. But it was too high-tech for me at that point in time. But you're right. You're essentially, well, you're cut off from the outside world at this point. It's you 54 of you in a meeting now having to make the choice to make your way down those 100 plus floors of Tower 2. That's exactly right. If you've ever served in the armed services, wherever you are, wherever you may be, the first thing you do when you attack the enemy is you cut the lines of communications. And whether it was witting or unwitting that day, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly that day, that's exactly what the terrorists did. They cut off the lines of communications and you're exactly right. Now you're on your own and you hope that you start making incredibly intelligent decisions. And that's exactly what everybody had to do. The 54 guys that were in our group, 
because they couldn't communicate and because we didn't know what was going on, we were kind of nicked about it, you know, like, God, what? we were perturbed. And I'm sure anybody listening to this is going to say, well, didn't you understand? Well, honestly, each and every one of you knew way more what was going on inside and outside those buildings than any of us that were right there because we didn't know. We didn't have a clue. Did you manage to head to a window? I know you were in an enclosed room, but were you able to get to a window and confirm with your own eyes what was happening? We got down to the 90th floor in the stairwell. The fire stairwell door propped open, everybody filing out onto the 90th floor. I'm in the fire insurance business. I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. I followed everybody out, didn't know the building, didn't know know, if I had to get to another fire stairwell or not. And that's where, yeah, I I think I experienced the worst 30, 40 seconds of my life. Um, Looking out those windows to the north, seeing these gaping black holes through the sides of the building, gray and black billows of smoke pouring out of those holes, flames redder than any red I'd ever seen before in my life, licking up the side of the building. And you could see through the smoke and the fire into those huge black holes, and you could see the fuselage of a large plane, pieces of the fuselage of a large plane lodged inside that building and burning. And it was, as you mentioned earlier, a crystal clear September day. And I remember thinking to myself, how did this pilot not see the building? We thought this was an aviation issue, right? Not a, an accident, not something on so purpose. So many people did. Of course. And, you know, we're looking at this and I'm shaking my head saying, how could this happen? But you see furniture, paper, people being pulled out of the building against their will because of the force, the pure blunt force of that collision of plane and building. And it's gruesome. It's gruesome. And you have that second of not knowing what to do. But I know that that was where I felt very strong in my stomach, that pit of my stomach. I want my mommy feeling I just wanted to go home. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to do was go home. And um, there were people on the floor mesmerized, I guess, by what they saw, frozen in fear, maybe screaming, but not seeming to be able to move, I made an immediate decision that I was back to the fire stairwell and that I was getting out no matter what it took. And they made an announcement almost exactly at that point that went something to the effect of the event has been contained to the North Tower. We believe that the South Tower is safe. We suggest that if you work in the South Tower, you return to your workstation. If you are a visitor, We suggest that you stay where you are until further notice. If you feel you need to proceed, please proceed with caution. Now, I can see you today. Your listeners can't see you, but I can see the look in your face, and I get that every time. How could they make that announcement? But it made lots of sense. There's a cop and a firefighter with the person in charge of building security down at the lobby level. They know what's going on in the North Tower at this point. They can't let anybody outside. They got 25,000 people coming down these steps and it's raining concrete, steel and bodies outside. And in our building, the elevators are going up and down. The electricity's on. Ventilation system's working. Hey, let's just wait and see what's happening here before we do anything too dramatic. You've also got to coordinate the emergency response on the ground. You've got to get those firefighters in. You've got to get the ambulance in. You've got to get the police in. 
So you don't want to have the 25,000 people of Tower 2 making their way down and out into the open. So you're right, in terms of an emergency response approach, and who on earth? Nobody is thinking that there is going to be a second plane. No one knows this is a terrorist attack. This is perceived to be an aviation disaster, an accident. The last thing you think is that another plane is coming. I couldn't have said it better. Who'd have ever known that within 18 minutes the same thing would happen again? Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I'm making my way down. When I got to that 78th floor sky lobby level that I mentioned earlier, Mary Weeman, once again, she's out in front of some of us, okay? And she's looking back at me and some others and screaming that we should go to the elevator with her because she's not going to walk down 78 flights of steps in her shoes. She was using some words in between there that they use in New York a lot that, you know, not everybody always uses, okay? I can only (laughs) imagine. I can only imagine the profanity. (laughs) And... I finally had a moment of common sense and good decision-making. I thought to myself, building, state of duress, fire, emergency, don't get on an elevator. Wasn't our building 
but I just, in my heart of hearts, knew not the right thing to do. I never said a word to Mary, politely waved to her, turned, went back to the fire stairwell. Arguably the best decision I've made in what's still my life, because I was somewhere between 74 and 72 when the second plane plowed through our building. And that plane went through our building between floors 77 and 82, 83. So we were just a few short stories below the strike zone. Never felt anything like that in my life and hope to never, ever feel anything like that again. That building, that concrete bunker that we're inside, starts shaking so violently back and forth at angles it shouldn't be shaking. And this concrete spidering out, the handrails breaking away from the wall. The steps were like waves in the ocean, undulating underneath our feet. And we feel a heat ball blowing by us. We smell jet fuel. And we're racking back and forth. It seemed like forever. Maybe it was minutes, maybe just seconds. And it rattles back and forth and back and forth and finally settles. And you would think there would be this mass pandemonium. But again, there was this total moment of stunned silence. Anybody that was there was just stunned, wondering what had just occurred. We all tried to grab our cell phones again, and thank God they weren't working at that moment because at that point in time, ignorance was bliss. What we didn't know actually didn't hurt us, okay? And so, you know, they didn't work right, and we're still in the dark, figuratively, uh, trying to figure out what's going on. The conjecture game. Saw a plane in the other building. Fuel cell exploded. Smelt the jet fuel. Felt the building rock from that explosion. Never in our wildest dreams did we ever imagine that this was a plane that had gone through our building. So the only logical thing to do was get out. And that's what we proceeded to all do, those of us that were there. Now, we're coming down from 105, which at that time was the highest occupied level of the building because 106 through 109 in the South Tower were heating, ventilation, air conditioning, elevator equipment, 110 was the observation deck. It wasn't open yet. So we're at the highest occupied level of the building at that time. So we're kind of the last people down. And now, not knowing this at this point, but with a plane having cut off all means of exiting, we're it. We're the last of the group to be able to get by. So there was no massive crowds. There were no craziness like that going on. We just were able to continue our way down. And on our trip down, Egress was pretty easy, two, three, four people wide, and everything was pretty copacetic until the 35th floor. Um, and that's the chance when we had for the first time to encounter the police, firefighters, and the paramedics from New York City and the Port Authority coming in the other direction. Just the looks in their eyes, just the looks in their eyes told the whole story, no words. They knew. They knew that they were going up those steps to try to fight a fire that they couldn't beat. They knew they were going up those steps to try to save lives that they probably couldn't save. And they knew that they were going up, and they knew that they weren't coming back. And they were on the scene so incredibly quickly, Joe, to get up to you that fast in 
really a matter of minutes if you think about it and to take that heavy equipment or anything they could up those stairs to try and save lives to say these people are heroic our heroes is well it's just not enough is it what did they say to you did they say anything as they were coming past you on their stairs was it just simply get out get out as fast as you can yeah the only messages at all that they were sending was keep moving keep moving keep moving yeah they're dragging hoses they're carrying equipment they're doing everything they can it was pretty amazing that the women and men just like you and me who were in that going down there has been a little bit of heroic action on their part too. There were people coming into those stairwells at every level who were coming in on crutches or had a cane or were coming out of a wheelchair or were just scared to death. And people just like you and me were helping those people physically and emotionally so that they could get down the steps. So we all became part of the big team. You had mentioned it earlier, the whole world was human at that particular point in time. It wasn't American or European. It wasn't black or white. It wasn't Jewish or Christian. It wasn't any of that. It was, we're all human beings and we all got to help each other and become a team. And while we don't see that outwardly enough, it was something that was in full force that day. And it was a thing of beauty. Yeah, the cops and the firefighters made their way up. We're making our way down. We're at about the 18th floor and we hear a guy who was actually on the 15th floor, but we could hear him as far as 18 because he had a bullhorn, electronic, megaphone, whatever. A guy singing at the top of his lungs in a voice only a mother could love on payday. I mean, this guy was just absolutely <laughs> horrible, but he's singing God Bless America. He doesn't even know all the words. But he would stop in the middle of all this and shout out, this is a day you're never going to forget. You always remember where you were on September 11th. This is a day that's going to go down in history. He was a security guy from the building. He was clearly sent up to make sure he could get people out of the building, make them laugh a little bit. He had to know with that bad singing, he was making people laugh. And just keep them moving, keep them moving, keep them moving. And I wonder how many lives that man saved that day while giving up his own. And when we got down to the lobby, you look out the windows, you see what looks like the vestiges of war, crumbled concrete, twisted steel, red markings or blotches on the ground. And you knew what those red blotches on the ground were. They couldn't let us out at the street level. It's raining concrete, steel bodies. They take us down into the underground, the concourse level of the complex. You get down there, that's the chance we had to see people for the first time who were in real need, missing limbs, gaping wounds. And, you know, human nature just makes you want to reach out in an emergency situation like that and help. And you couldn't that day. And the reason that you couldn't that day was there were so many cops and firefighters and paramedics there. I have never seen in one place at one time such an outpouring of caring and of concern and of love. And that's what this was this day, this total outpouring of love. So the folks that needed help were getting the help they needed. And the folks like me who were okay, we're kind of on our own. The herd mentality takes over. You hope somebody at the front of your little herd knows where they're going or what they're doing. We hear this kid scream out, hey, we want to get to the northeastern end of the concourse because it's the furthest away from the two towers. My internal GPS said, yep, that sounds right. Let's follow him. 
And we start making our way through this rat maze of corridors down in the concourse. There's everything down there, every fast food restaurant known to mankind, all kinds of retail stores. We're making our final left to get up to that northeastern end of the complex. And American listeners will always appreciate this. There's a Starbucks. It's open. There are people in line. (laughs) They're like, oh, my God. It just goes to prove that in the worst of moments, not all the minds are always where they need to be. Unbelievable. I'm a card-carrying member of the Starbucks nation, but I knew at that moment, eh, this wasn't the day to stand in line to get a coffee, okay? so Joe, I'm going to have to stop you there one second. There's not many things that leave me speechless, but the idea that there is a queue for Starbucks as there are hundreds, if not thousands of people flooding their way out of Tower 2 is remarkable and leaves an image in my head that I'm not sure is ever going to leave me. I mean, you just think... Your latte is not worth it that much. Turn around and get out. We all need coffee in the morning. We all know it's early. But turn around and walk your way out. The kid that was running it, he's behind there and there's a cop screaming at him. You got to get out. And he's like, but I got a line. Man, I mean, (laughs) it just, again, I laugh because if I don't laugh, I would cry. It just goes to the point of not all the minds need to be where they need to be when there's an emergency. Everybody's not always thinking the same thoughts. I'm sure there are some people there thinking to themselves, well, if I got to walk so far, I better have my coffee. My Lord. (laughs) Is there some level of, I don't know, explanation of the fact that they were so far back in the concourse on that ground floor that they didn't know the severity of the situation? Well, if they're all like I was... I still, at that point, despite seeing what I've seen so far, had no real idea of what was going on because there was no announcement that this was a terrorist attack. There was no announcement that run for your lives or you're going to be dead within eight minutes, okay? There was nothing like that. We just knew something bad was going on. People were hurt. We needed to get out. And in classic New York style, okay, yeah, I'm moving along. Let me get a Starbucks while I'm going, you know, maybe stop over at the bar and get a shot. I don't know that that was happening, but I mean, you know, this was kind of the way it was, okay? Nobody understood what exactly was going on. And how can you? I mean, even in the most out there sci-fi, would you really have predicted or written about or conceived this idea that the two towers were, like you say, gonna come down in the matter of minutes. Nobody would have ever thought in their mind of minds that somebody would use two gigantic planes as missiles to attack two buildings that were thought to be indestructible. Nobody would have thought that. So the problem was not knowing. Even though it was good not to know from one perspective, not knowing also took away that ultimate sense of urgency. When we got out of the building, there's every uniform in the world screaming at us. There's stuff all over the ground. There's bobcat bulldozers already there pushing that stuff back. And it's a gruesome sight. And they're screaming at us, run, 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 don't stop. And you get across the street, we were in front of St. Paul's Chapel. You stop, you turn around, you look at this incredible sight, this ticker tape of concrete and steel and bodies. I mean, people making a choice. Do I burn 
or do I jump? I don't know how one can be that brave to even make that decision, but that was the decision that these people that we saw plummeting to the ground were making. Do I jump or do I burn? When we understood that, we knew, okay, we've seen enough. It's time to move. I had encountered another gentleman who's a business associate of mine, even to this day, when we were coming out of the building. We decided that we were going to try to walk to his home on the Upper West Side because I had no other choice. I had no clue what I was going to do. I was supposed to go back to Philly on a train, get my rental car, drive it to the airport, get in a plane on that Tuesday night and fly back to Chicago. And I was pretty convinced after seeing all this that that was probably not going to happen. So David and I decided that we would head up to his place and we started to walk. We were eight blocks away, eight minutes. There are very short blocks north to south in that section of Manhattan. And we came across a commercial laundry, door thrown wide open, the all news radio station in New York, WINS blaring out that this was an on purpose terrorist attack and our jaws just dropped to the ground. This doesn't happen in the United States. This doesn't happen here. But the next couple of sounds are the ones that guys like me that were there hear every day and every night. The unmistakable sound of the twisting steel, the crumbling concrete of what once was the South Tower, the building that we had been in just eight to ten minutes earlier coming to the ground. And even more hauntingly, tens of thousands of people on the streets of New York all screaming the same blood-curdling scream. It sticks with you. I hear it every day. I hear it every night. We decided, David decided, that he had a friend that lived in the Tribeca section of the city. We were able to actually get in her flat, which was good. And we were able to stay with her. Her husband, ironically, stuck in Chicago, which is where I wanted to be at this point. And we waited and we watched the TV just like everybody else. And we tried to understand what was going on and tried to make some sense, tried to communicate. And we couldn't communicate. Landlines not working, cell phones not working, Blackberries were just coming into being, and that was forget about it because the you know that wasn't even close to being ready to be used routinely anyhow. And so we watch. Five hours, five and a half hours into the event, Giuliani gets on the TV. No matter where he's at mentally and politically these days, that man did a heck of a job that day. He was a true hero that day. He got on TV. He told everybody he understood that this was bad, but this was New York. We were going to recover. We were going to get through this. We were going to do everything we needed to do. And then he said the most truthful comment he could have ever made. He said, and I know all of you just want to get home. And he paused for a minute and he said it again. I know all of you just want to get home. I mean, we all saw the pictures of people walking over the George Washington Bridge to get back into New Jersey, walking out the Long Island Railroad because there were no trains to get out onto Long Island. And he understood that he needed to move hundreds and thousands and thousands of people if he could. And he made the decision to reopen the subways. Gutsy move, heroic move. And my friend David was there with me and he said, come on, we're going to my place. Let's go. I said, where? And he said, to the subway. And I said, David, we got to go through Midtown, Empire State Building. We, we didn't know what the next target was going to be. 
but he was convincing. Off we went over to the subway. Couldn't even get down the steps. There were so many people there. So many people there. And we finally got on to like the third train after we were able to get down. And David knew that I just wanted to get out of New York if I could. And they were talking on TV about how Amtrak was bringing empty trains in from Jersey and taking people out of New York and into New Jersey and down to Philadelphia, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I wanted to do. Just get out, even if it was just back to Philly, where my rental car was and where my parents still lived. I could get there. And when we got to 32nd Street, he looked at me, I looked at him, Penn Station. We had heard that this was going on. We walked out of the subway car together without saying a word to each other. We walk into Penn Station, mobs of people. A woman from Amtrak waves her hand at me and says, where are you going, honey? <laughs> and I said, I got to get to Philadelphia. She says, great, there's a train down here about to take off. And I reached into my suco pocket to give her my return ticket. And she looked at me and she said, are you kidding me, sweetie? We're not collecting tickets today. And I was like, yeah, some things in New York never change, right? What you get on this train, you go under the Hudson, you come up on the Jersey side, you look back at what was the greatest skyline in all the world, now relegated to a gray and black cloud. 80 minutes of a train ride, people sitting and standing packed into that train. Not a word was spoken. There weren't any words to say. And when I got to Philly, I was lucky I had that rental car. I made the critical decision not to try to drive back to Illinois at that point. I'd go up to Northeast Philly to the house that I grew up in where my mom and dad were still residing at the time. That's what I did. And when I got there, my mom was waiting for me. Love your mothers, especially you gentlemen. Love your mothers. Because there's my mom. She comes off the step, gives me this big giant hug, pats my head, sobs in my ear, my baby, my baby. Didn't have the heart to remind her that I was the oldest one. But my mom did for me at that moment what she continues to do for me to this day. She helped me and she loved me. And God, that's what I needed at that moment was my mother's love. She helped me into the house and I hit the floor in front of the television and passed out. I don't know, mental exhaustion, physical fatigue. About two in the morning, I feel this kick in my side and I push my glasses back, rub my eyes, look up over me. My father's hovering over me and he said, well, aren't you ever going to go to bed? And I went, oh my God, I'm 17 again. <laughs> <laughs> but I did what he told me. Went up, got a few hours of sleep, woke up early the next morning, called the office, let them know that I wasn't going to be in. And it was a good thing because they thought I was dead. And I started to make that trip in the car, a 14-hour trip back to Aurora, Illinois, the western suburb that I lived in at that time. Did it in about 12 and a half hours. So please, if anybody's in law enforcement, don't hold it against me. But you just wanted to get home. You just wanted to get home as fast as you could. And I was about 10, 15 minutes away. Called my wife for probably what was like the 50th time. Hey, I'm almost home, almost there. And she kind of hesitated a little. I said, what's happening? And she said, they're having a mass at church. And I thought it was a good idea. And I stopped there right in that part of the sentence. And I said, it's a good day to go to church. We all need to do that. So I pulled down the road that the church was on, tried to pull into the parking lot. 
you would have thought it was Christmas. No room at the end. I mean, it was just packed. Found a parking spot finally. I don't know whether I was more afraid the day before or the minute I opened up the back doors to that church to see these hundreds of pairs of eyes all staring back at me knowing where I had been. And I look over to the right, to the pew where we always sit. We're Roman Catholics. We always sit in the same pew. Okay, And, and there is my wife, a couple of my kids, and my friends. My wife, I don't know how I got so lucky. She's my best friend. She's one of the greatest human beings. She's not demonstrative. She's not a type of person that would do what you and I are doing here today. So that's what made it doubly incredible when I looked over to the right, saw this non-demonstrative woman jump over the back of that pew, run to the back of that church, and give me the greatest hug and a kiss a man could ever want. And it was at that moment, that moment, that I knew I was home. Joe, I think you remind us that despite the fact that the searing images of those planes hitting the two towers dominate our memories of that day, it is the human stories, the lives that were lost, but the lives that were also changed forever that really are the lasting legacy of those attacks. And the fact that we should remember all of those positive things that you said, and it's hard to draw positives out of this story, but the fact that people came together and it struck me when you said that everyone wasn't American that day, they were human that day, and that we don't see enough of that. And I think if there's one thing we can draw out of this is that, well, like you say, love our mothers, but also all of us just try and be a bit more human, a bit more kind, and a bit more caring for each other, and enjoy the time that we've got. What motivates you to keep telling this story, Drew? It's tragic. It is an era-defining event. It's in the forefront of our minds, our history. It changes the course of America. But for you, what is it that keeps driving you to tell your story and the story of all of those who died and suffered? I think when you've been a part of a historic event such as this, it's your obligation to tell the story. It's your absolute obligation to tell the story so that you can hope that what you have to say can help people not allow history to repeat itself in the negative ways, okay? I also believe it's an obligation because I believe that the 3,000 people that lost their voices that day need to continue to be heard, and that's what I can serve as, as a voice for those who are now voiceless, and to allow their spirits that were so senselessly dashed that day to rise up again, reminding them and reminding all of us that while they may have lost their lives, they didn't lose their lives in vain. And this is the drive that I have had for 20 years at this point. I do presentations across the country I do, in a non-COVID year, 50 to 60 of these presentations. I do it on my time, on my dime. I do this because I believe it is my obligation, just like my Holocaust brothers and sister survivors before me who have and continue to have that obligation to tell that story so that we can understand what the goods and the bads are. It's interesting that you mentioned what you mentioned. There were silver linings in that cloud that day. And one of the greatest silver linings of all was the ability for all of us to turn around and be together as one. And we should be together as one as much as we humanly can because we all belong to one race, the human race. And that's what we need to do. 
And it was also things that we saw that day, the kindness to each other, the ability to assist. This was an attack not against the United States. 82 countries lost citizens that day, 82 countries. I just hope that we can continue to talk about this. The new generation that has no clue about this has to understand it. It can't just be a history book or a film or something like that. Well, let's take that point for a second, Joe, because it's a good point. I, as many of our listeners will know, I teach history, but I also teach terrorism and counterterrorism and the history of terrorism. And my students now, well, they're 18 years old, Joe. They weren't born when 9-11 happened. They have no living memory, no conscious memory. This is the point that we're at, and this is why this history is just so incredibly important to tell and to keep telling. And I, I bring in the newspapers from that day so they have something to touch, something to see. But you also have to go in and, and look at the fact, like you say, everyone came together at that point. There were victims from all over the world. You look at the streets of Moscow, the flowers piled high, the people crying in the streets. Who is it who's one of the first people to ring George W. Bush? It's President Putin. It's a very different moment of unity, a unique moment between nation states when a non-state terroristic actor commits these attacks. And it's something that not only are we perhaps forgetting in the common memory of this, but also forgetting as nation states around the world, as an anonymity grows between a number of the great powers. There was a moment where everyone came together, where the Queen of England stopped us from playing the national anthem of the changing of the guard, and it was the Star Spangled Banner that was played across the city at that point. It, it's incredible that the world was together in that moment. And the support that we as Americans did get from the rest of the world is absolutely unforgettable to somebody like myself. I felt that love and I felt that compatriotism that day and knew that there is that common thread. You know, born and raised as a good old Catholic boy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Love God, love your neighbors. That was rules one and two. Man, that day, that's all came down to. That's all came down to. And everything else became pretty unimportant. Pretty unimportant. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time and for recounting your personal history of this. I know you run the World Trade Center Survivor Always Remember initiative, and we'll put a link to that into the description for this podcast so people can go on to the website they can read your story they can see when your next events are coming up and importantly they can make donations as well thank you so much for your time joe thank you very very much Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.